Hello again, I'm Miriam Felton. Welcome to Yarn Stories Podcast. Hi there. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I hope that you enjoy listening and that you'll subscribe if you do. If you're a regular listener, please consider sharing this podcast with a friend or leaving a review in any of the many places where podcasts can be found. We're listed on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Facebook, and all of those places have ranking options. Reviews really help to bring the podcast up in the search rankings, so I'd appreciate it if you do leave any kind of review. You can also join the Friends of Yarn Stories podcast Ravelry group to join in some great discussion. Today's interview is with Carita Collins of Neighborhood Fiber Company in Baltimore, Maryland. We recorded this back in January when Carita was still pregnant, but she's since given birth to a beautiful baby boy named Kai. So we're sending her all of the good sleep and healthy baby vibes along with this podcast. Let's just jump right into it, shall we? So I'm here with Carita Collins, owner of Neighborhood Fiber Company, based in Baltimore, Maryland. Hey, lady. Hello. So you are really devoted to your community. You even have a weekly craft or noon at your studio. We do. You started in D.C., and a lot of your naming is really based on places that are there. Um, But now you're based in Baltimore. So aside from colorway names (laughs) and the location, what influence does your location have on your yarns? Well, we... It's not just the colors for us. It's really about kind of what we do with the yarn and what we do in the neighborhood. We, we try to be like a a location that people feel like they can come into and ask questions and get help. We're still actually kind of trying to figure out what it means to have, you know, a store that sells basically that makes and sells luxury goods in a neighborhood that, for like that most of the residents cannot afford to buy like luxury yarn. Okay. So we're still trying to figure out how to make that work with, you know, with our business model, but also with our sort of our community activism model. So mostly what we do, I think that it's a good, if you're not sure what to do, then you should stick to your strengths. And before (laughs) I had this business, I did fundraising. So we try and give away a lot of money. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we're good at making yarn and we're and we're good at raising money, so yeah. that's our basic. Um, we try to do it for local, like for local causes and that's local smart. things. And being in the neighborhood that we're in, it means that we are, for the most part, working with people who are, you know, close by who can yeah. come come to the store and visit us. Yeah. Whether it's a class of students from the arts college or a class of students from a local high school. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you do with them when they show up? Like, are you teaching classes? Are you just For having community part, space? We just let them come and um, come and see what it's like to have a business, and yeah. we answer questions about entrepreneurship. I think it's. I really believe that entrepreneurship and small business ownership is a great way out of poverty yeah. for individual people. And I think it gets overlooked when people are talking about workforce development yeah. and because those jobs that, you know, 
that provide you with all the security and, you know, let you have a pension and work there until you retire. They don't exist anymore. That's true. Well, and I feel like if you, if you have skills building a business around them, you know, skills that you've developed throughout your life doing whatever, like maybe your, you know, dad built furniture. Do you know what I Mm -hmm. mean? Like things you learned along the way, you're, you're at a disadvantage trying to learn a new skill for a job that might not actually be there ever again, rather than making your own space with a skill you already have. Right. And a job that may not interest you particularly and may not give you the flexibility that you need to live the life that you have. So if you are like, you know, you, you really need to make a living, you really need to work, but you also have, you know, two kids under five. Mm -hmm. Dealing with their school schedules or, you know, like my, my sister was faced with a, with a particularly shitty uh, choice of working to make it just barely enough money to pay for the daycare of her children, you know, or not working and taking care of them herself. Like it was going to be a wash either way, but she just, she really wanted to work. Yeah. It becomes, you know? And nobody should have to make choices like that. That's no, it's a horrible choice to have to make. I mean, you, you should be able to, you should be able to, to do a job. If you want to work, you should be able to work and it should like there should be work available for people and there should be childcare yeah. available, but that's not the world <laughs> we live in. So no, people, or at least not the country that we live correct. in. Correct. So people have to kind of make their own harder decisions. One of the yeah. great things that happened after um, the affordable care act passed is that a lot more people felt empowered to, you know, quit their jobs and start their own businesses because yeah, because they had the safety net. All of a sudden, it became more affordable to get health insurance. Like, staying with a job just for health insurance is, I mean, it's, I've been there, and it's terrible. Uh, me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, at one point, when I decided to do this full-time, you know, like, way back in the day, you know, we talked about it, and the decision was made that he would provide the health care so that I could do this. But, like, I had the I had the benefit of having a partner who could have a job that provided health care. Like if you're by yourself or, you know, if you're a single parent, you've got to support a family and you don't have that second option. Yeah, totally. I didn't have like even with the Affordable Care Act and yeah, which gave me more stable health care options. Um, I have never I didn't have like, like truly like stable yeah, like really yeah. good coverage until I got married. And that's only because my husband is, yeah. he works a job that's a union job. So he still has like, you know, at no cost to him, really great insurance. Oh man. It's, that's a hard, it's a hard place to be in. So is most of the community that you're in like a really, a really poor area? Like your where your studio is, or just well, just uh, you know, working class sort of people. It's it's a real mix because we are so Baltimore is yeah. overall poor, you know, in terms of uh, yeah the Other median business. income level as compared yeah. to even like the suburbs around it. But there are pockets of wealth. Um, we are not located in one of those like pockets of serious wealth, but we are kind of 
we're at a crossroads actually. So, you know, directly to the east of us is a neighborhood that is, you know, primarily, you know, young. Yeah, so gentrifying. Hip apartment dwellers, like Starbucks. There's, and it's, and it's rental. Like it's. Is there a Whole Foods yet? Because, you know. No. That's a big gentrification. There are two. And one (laughs) to the north and one to the south. But they are, the neighborhood that we're adjacent to is very much, it's always been a kind of rental neighborhood. And it's, you know, you know, it's got nightclubs, it's got restaurants, it's got bars, it's got, yeah, it's fairly close to two universities. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the hip single place, the kind of place that I guess, you know, if you move to the city, and you want to be close to cool stuff, but you want to still feel like you're in in a city yeah you like people (laughs) live there and it's a more diverse neighborhood than some of the other some of the other neighborhoods that have the same vibe yeah um that are much more white and so we're like two blocks from that and then two blocks in the other direction there are housing projects and you know like you're headed to west baltimore so you're sort of in the middle yeah, we're kind of in the middle at the cross. Yeah. We're really at, at the crossroads, but we're also, we're still in the middle of the city, like towards the center of town. We're about a mile from downtown. Mm-hmm. It's, it is an arts district, which is a state designation that gives you certain benefits if you're an artist in, a, in an attempt to kind of control the revitalization of the neighborhood. So it's, it's a different kind of, it's got its own, it's got its own feel. So it sounds like being in this particular physical space is definitely like moving you toward a particular activism. I think from me knowing you, you are activist in your heart. <laughs> so I always wanted to be like a community organizer yeah. and except when I did it, I was like super awkward. So <laughs> I was like, I don't actually like talking to people. I'm going to be back here writing grants. That's it's fair. fair. <laughs> You've got to be a particular like extroverted sort of person to be the the front man for an organization like that, which I know I'm not. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm really like, I'm not that person. I am committed to justice. Yeah. But, but you're going to do it in your own quiet way. I, you know, you spend time trying to figure out yeah, how to do it. Yeah. So your business is is built on inclusivity. Um, you know, it's neighborhood fiber company. You're all about about building the community, um, the yarn community, as well as it sounds like the community within your neighborhood. Uh, you participate in the Summer of Giving, where 10% of your total sales go to charitable organizations. Yeah. So where does that come from for you? Well, initially, all of all of my like the the giving that we do at work began with the uprising in Baltimore and the killing of Freddie Gray and the sort of just you know watching other people watch what was happening in Baltimore in 2015 um with you know and watching other people have opinions about Baltimore yeah. that were based entirely on the wire like, what they saw on CNN and, and the wire. So it was, I wanted to do something. Well, and the reality is that like, again, Baltimore is not a huge city. So these places that were, you know, talking, that were being shown on CNN, like there's a CBS on fire and there's, 
a kid standing on top of a cop car, like breaking the glass on it. And, oh, look, here comes like a highly militarized police presence marching down the street with like a tank behind them. Um, Seeing those things, I really wanted, everyone wanted to do something and no one knew what to do. None of us knew what to do. And it was close. You know, it was because it's not that Baltimore is not sprawling. It's not, you know, it's small. No, it's an old East Coast city. So we are all on top of each other in a lot of ways. And, you know, everyone, everyone was arguing. Everyone had a different perspective on it. Yeah. And, you know, whether they were calling them riots or uprising or, you know, protests gone wrong, whatever, everyone. They're all such loaded words. Like, you know what people are thinking about it based on which words they're using. Exactly. Um, And there's all these, there's so many, like, dog whistle words that mean, that that sound like they mean one thing, but you know what they really mean. So whenever anyone's talking about thugs on the street, you take. You know that they mean black people. Right. And it's like, it's much more, it's not as. It's not as simple as, oh, look at these lawless thugs on the street. Yeah. It's much more complicated than that. Yeah. So I wanted to do something that would kind of place us as a company mm-hmm. and me as, a, you know, as the face of that company in a specific camp of yeah. people. I wanted people to know where I stood yeah. because everyone was asking us anyway. Yeah, because you know, we're the we're the yarn company in, in Baltimore. Baltimore. Yep. So I wanted to make sure everyone knew where we stood and I wanted to do something to help. And, you know, again, when in doubt, you fall back on what you're good at. Yeah. And so we developed a color that was named after the neighborhood that Freddie Gray was that he lived in, where his the housing project he lived was. Yeah. And we donated 100% of the proceeds from that yarn to the Baltimore Community Foundation, which I thought was a a really innocuous um, (laughs) choice. Like we could have gone super radical um, and picked like an activist. Yeah. No, but this is building community in Baltimore. Like that seems Well, and they had a fund to rebuild Baltimore, which was about rebuilding. I was like, no one could object to this. Um, oh, no. and for the most part, no one did because we had been, because I am, you know, openly, like openly progressive yeah. and visibly black and female, <laughs> people make assumptions about my politics anyway. Yeah. So if anyone had a problem with those politics, then they probably weren't one of our customers. That's fair. Um, we did have a few people who were really, um, upset about it like who were actually bothered by it yeah um and, and we got like one really nasty email oh. but it was so nasty that it was like comical yeah yeah because it was like, like yeah you're is, not my people it's fine this is hilarious like this is i was like this isn't even i'm not even sure this is from a real person <laughs> so but we ended up raising uh, a little over ten thousand dollars oh that's great which for an organization our size yeah, it's was, amazing. It blew my mind. And I suddenly, I felt very powerful. I felt like I can make this happen. This is something I can do. And how can we keep this momentum going? Like, yeah. And, you know, once you do that too, people look to you for, yeah. you know, a way to, 
a way to make a difference and do something when they're in a situation where they don't know what to do. So yeah, there's so many voices and so many and so many like different things vying for our attention that I think it's it's part of our mandate as public figures in this industry to to say where we stand and let people know about situations if we can. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I'm all an advocate for anybody doing whatever you can to help. And if you can't manage it or you can't, don't have the mental space for it, cool, don't. But, you know, like I feel like giving us – so having yarn as a base for a connection and having, you know, fiber arts in general as a connection gives gives a voice that people will listen to. Absolutely. And, and it's a way to sort of – to start the conversation with someone who may not even be thinking about that issue. Like whatever it is. Ground to jump from. Yeah. It's, um, it's really, it's been, it's been great. Like it was a real sort of turning point for the business in some ways. Like up until that point I had been in terms of timing, like we had been really hard scrabble at different points. Like I, had had really serious financial lows with the business that, you know, any sane person would have been like, maybe I should do something else. But I'm like, no, I can't, I don't want to do anything else. And yeah, I'm going to figure out how to make this one work. I am incredibly stubborn. So I'm just going to ignore the fact that (laughs) my checking account says negative $300 and keep doing this. I mean, I was like bouncing rent checks at different points. It was bad, but, um, and I didn't have like, a huge safety net of like my husband's money or yeah, you know, yeah. Any of that stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, most people in the world don't have like family money they can fall back on. I'm always so confused about this. Like these people who have like, Oh, well, you know, this isn't working out or I, I bought this house and I have a down payment because of my family. Right. My family gave me $20,000 and I was like, where is your what what family are you from right yeah and like that's you know my there was there was talk about you know hey we'll we'll pay for your college you know if you go to college and then by the time you know I got to college my family situation had changed and we were you know living in a rental house and you know everything had changed and my family was not able to help me pay for college at all you know like you know my older siblings got it they got you know, college paid for, but like shit happens. Well, and like different, like people underestimate the sort of long-term effects of poverty. Yeah. Yeah. Like we had a few years of poverty and I didn't have my college paid for, you know what I mean? But like, like my family has rebounded in a way that people who have long-term poverty are never going to. Right. I mean, like I grew up in a solidly like upper middle-class family. My, like I was raised by a single mom, but you know, my mom was a lawyer and Mm -hmm you know, we were doing fine and there were only the two kids, but you know, she was one step removed from like, you know, my grandparents had at different points, they had a grocery store in West Baltimore. That was their like achievement. But before that, you know, like they were farmers and then my grandmother came to the city and you know, she was a domestic worker. Like this isn't yeah. like, we don't have generations of wealth to pass down. Well, and like if your mom's firm had downsized her, she would have been screwed until she found a new job. Like, 
you know, she was yeah. probably like paycheck to paycheck, make, you know, maybe putting a little bit by, but you know, she's supporting kids by herself on, on her lawyer salary. Oh yeah. No, we had no sense ever that there was anything that there was any want, but yeah. you know, she worked hard for that. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and so you know, you didn't feel when want. my parents separated, like I know now as an adult, having talked to her about like, uh, wealth accumulation and making decisions, better financial decisions. And she's like, did you know I almost lost the house when you were five? And I'm like, no, I did not know that. But, you know, it <laughs> but makes thank you sense. for making my childhood peaceful in that way that I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I was completely free from that. I was going into kindergarten. My parents were separated. My little brother was probably two. Mm-hmm. So she's got like these two little kids. And has started a new job that is going to be a good job, but yeah, but isn't yet, (laughs) but is about to lose her house. Like, Oh man. Like the idea of that kind of financial strain is, is horrifying. So yeah. But for so many people, it's so close. Like she owned the house too, you know? So at least she had, you know, like if, if she lost the house, she'd be down to renting, but she'd be fine rather than like, but people, you know, who can't, necessarily even pay the rent from month to month like she had the asset of the house which was a nice buffer well i mean and people in general like this was in the 80s so it's not like during the foreclosure crisis where they were foreclosing on people left and right i mean it wasn't that machine wasn't working the same way yes um as it would have if she had been renting something yeah which may have made things very different yeah that's true so um, I want to talk to you about the community-supported fiber. Mm-hmm. I often describe this podcast topic as the slow food movement, but for fiber and yarn. Um, <laughs> so the community-supported agriculture tie-in is really nice. Can you tell me how you got to that idea? Yeah, I, you know, it's one of those things where you just, you meet people and sometimes you have a good connection with them and it's amazing. So I met a woman through a friend of mine who happened to be active with the Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival, and I wanted to talk to her anyway because of that. So my friend who was our connection sort of set up a trip for the two of us to go to her farm, Mm -hmm. and we talked, and while we were there, she was talking about how she would love to talk to me more about dying because she was doing some dyeing with her fleece and with her yarn from her sheep that she wasn't really happy with. And, you know, I gave her a little bit of advice, but I was like, you know, um, how about we pair this up? (laughs) You're just not going to, I was like, you're not going to get the same results that I get with that. I would get with my like more industrial kind of setup and yeah, like formulas and mm-hmm. and consistency and yeah like it stuff. depends on what you're going for so and also she's like yeah also I have a barn like the uh attic in the barn is just full of fleeces oh my I, god she had them just sitting around she had so many fleeces oh. just sitting around she still has fleeces like we still haven't gone through all of them there's just so many wow. of them I she just was like well would you like to dye them and I was like <laughs> yes I was like, yeah, let's do that. And, you know, tell me more about this 
exciting heritage breed of yeah. sheep that I, cause I didn't know anything about that. I was used to, yeah. you know, I was used to buying Merino uh-huh. and, <laughs> and you know, if you're feeling fancy, maybe you got some BFL because right. at that point people were just starting to get into different breed sheep breeds. Yeah. Yeah. It's Lester Longwell, right? Yes. The Lester Longwell. And you know, it's people who are really into a, specific thing know a lot about that specific thing yeah yeah. so she was able to give me lots and lots of information and I was just like blown away yeah by also the sheep are really cute because they've got like they've got all that like kind of long hair and they're just adorable that's awesome so the farm where the Lester Longwell is raised is in Westminster Maryland right yes and then you're having it processed at Schweitzer's Fiber Mill in Seven Valleys, Pennsylvania. So both of those are within an hour drive of Baltimore. Were you yes. were you really looking to keep everything like local, local since it's community supported? Well, I wanted it to be fairly local anyway. And Gwen, who owns the farm, already had a relationship with Schweitzer's. Oh, good. She'd actually um, she'd actually sold them one of her sheep. So I think that she secretly just likes to go up there and check on it. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and so she took me out there. Um, she took me out there with her. And I, you know, sat down and talked to Heather a little bit about her operation. It was my first time seeing a mill that was kind of cottage industry sized. like yeah, rather than a big industrial mill. Yeah, I mean, it still feels huge and industrial. Well, because um, you have to have giant machinery. Like, it's going to feel industrial. The machines are huge. But... Like, you know, the quantity that they're putting out is uh, substantially less probably than the other mills you've been looking at. Where they can efficiently put out a batch of 100 pounds that's yeah. or less than that, that's pretty, that's seriously small batch. Yeah. Compared to the stuff that, like, the mill where I get most of my materials is, you know, it's still family owned. It's in Canada. Mm-hmm. But it... Um, yeah. But it's much larger. You know, they do business with us, but they also do business with, like, major sweater manufacturers Mm -hmm. so their minimum is like 600 pounds yeah (laughs) well it it kills me that like because of the mill the way that mills are structured like that you know either they're a big one or they're tiny like you have to find a bright mill if you wanted to do something like clara parks is doing with you know clara yarn where it's you know specific a specific flock Mm-hmm. raised by a specific person and it's very very small footprint local like you have to find a tiny tiny mill to run yarn out of that like yeah you know just because you're not going to unless the flock is huge you're not going to be getting enough wool to make one of the big mills make it worthwhile for them to run it well and frankly None, even, so even the mill that I described that has a large minimum of 600 pounds, they're, yeah, they're, they're still small. not considered a really big mill. They're small. I mean, uh, yeah. there are no large, like super big mills in North America. Yeah. We don't even have that equipment anymore. It's all in, uh, China and, yeah. uh, you know, a couple other countries, but it's, it's to the point where we don't even have, like, we don't even possess the infrastructure to, yeah have like to move all of our like if somebody decided like hey i want to make a real effort at moving wool production to america back to america or back to north america and yeah. you know getting it done like getting all of it done here like big major wool processing it just doesn't yeah. make sense the the machinery yeah. is not here 
we sold well, it. I, there was a yeah. <laughs> like we sold it a long time ago. Yeah. There's a, an interesting bit that I talked to Deb Robson about um, a few episodes back, well, in 104, um, where the U.S. Army has an initiative to to have more natural fibers and to have them completely produced in the U.S. So that so as a result of that initiative, there's now a super washing facility within the U.S. Yes. Um, and that's pretty much the only reason. Right. It, it is the like it's the only reason. Because otherwise people would be getting, you know, their superwash done elsewhere. Because where else can you find a, a customer that is as solid and, like, as reliable Consistent, in terms yeah. of, like, ordering how much they need and mm-hmm. when they yeah. need it. There's no, there's nothing else. And the army had to create the market to make it viable for a superwash facility to be here. Well, and that's kind of, you know, in some ways that is, to me, totally, like, that's, that's the American way. That's how industry yeah. happens in this country um, and has been for a very long time if you ever talk to um oh goodness the people who run harrisville yarns oh yeah up in new hampshire Mm -hmm. they're like the the mill that so they're family run as well and the um the father who owns it is super knowledgeable about their little mill town specifically um which history the history of it. And one of the things, like one of the sort of stories that stuck out to me when I was there taking a weaving class is that their milling industry was basically like completely, it was brought back to life by the civil war. Yeah. Because Because suddenly industry came back to the North. Well, and suddenly like they, they had the contract for uniforms. So it was suddenly all of, all of a sudden there was all this demand and you know, right before the war ended, they got a contract with the New York City Police Department. Oh, and nice. that was what, because they had really overbought. Yeah. Like they had really gone, there was no model for them for how to no. like plan how to do this. <laughs> like, how do you supply a war when you don't yeah. know when it's going to end? And so they, you know, they so, found themselves with a whole bunch of, of wool fabric that was... Yeah. Union, like Union Blue, and that became the and uh, the NYPD's yeah uniforms. That makes sense. But it was, but it needs like the industries need that kind of consistent support, stable ordering. Yeah. yeah, that's how you keep somebody. Like that's how that's the way that wholesale works for producers is that you've got to have that customer, you've got to have or that group of customers so that you can count on a certain amount of money coming in. Yeah at a certain time, like steadily. Yeah. Otherwise you can't scale up reliably. Yeah. Well, and in the small scale of the same sort of vein, I think that's why so many people are doing Patreons because, you know, we've got our gig economy where so where we're doing like a little bit of this and a little bit of that and like here and there and, you know, and it's speaking personally, stressful as fuck to try to like budget on that. You don't know how many totally. patterns you're going to sell, you know, sell in a, in a, month so you don't know whether or not you can even pay the rent thankfully also again i have a spouse who has a consistent income (laughs) you know like it wouldn't work otherwise no i'm totally i sit here and i've started working with these new accountants and we've been going over like the last few years and looking at everything month by month and trying to you know do projections and it's hard 
it's so hard and they don't understand why it's so hard. And I have to keep explaining like, oh, this month, like, you know, our, our cash flow this month is really, is really terrible because, uh, it's the summer and, yeah. you know, they're like, but May is also the summer. I'm like, no, but oh, May is matter. the Maryland Cheap and Bull Festival. Exactly. You, there's so many factors. I had my, my little brother is a, is a, has a like master's in economics. So I had him look over like all my data and, you know, see if we could figure out some trends and, you know, figure out like, like what was, you know, a good month, what was a bad month, what months I should, you know, maybe like boost something else, like boost a sale so that I could, you know, and yeah. there's, it's too, it, there's too many variables. We looked at it and we were like, nope, can't make any actual predictions of trends. Well, and some of it, I mean, so we're looking at like years, like a few years past. Yeah. And some of it I don't remember because whatever. And yeah, then I'm looking right? at like, it and I'll like send him an email. I'm like, I figured out what happened in November of 2014. It was when the government shut down, you know, you know, and my major, my main wholesale customer is in Alexandria, Virginia. And when the government yeah. shuts down, none of her customers have any money. Like it was, yeah. And it's, it's oh things like God. that. So yeah. Like, you know, one, one yarn shop could shut down or one person could post a picture. Like I saw a boost in sales of a pattern because, you know, a company who sells kits posted yesterday and I got like, you know, $50 more than I would have otherwise because they had posted a picture of the kit and people just came and bought the pattern you know like there's yeah, too many variables plan that. Like to, it's, to trend it's really um it's a real challenge and some people are nerve-wracking better at it than other people and so yeah. the best thing that i figured out to do is um to kind of stalk and harass people that i know that are really good at it uh <laughs> and ask as many questions as they'll put up with yeah which is why i keep telling miss babs that i want to intern for her <laughs> That's and fair. she just looks at me like She's... I'm crazy, but she has this amazing mind for business. Yeah, she does. I mean, in addition to being a very talented dyer, she's got she's got business acumen that would blow you away. Like yeah. when you so everyone who's on this side of the industry knows that the price of merino has been steadily yeah, climbing been for the last few years. And, you know, all most of us can say is, yeah, merino, the pricing is going up. It's an international thing. And Babs is like, no, I'll tell you exactly what's happening. Like, there's a new demand for sweaters in China. And, you know, they are bidding on all the merino, which drives the prices up. And the supply just isn't there and and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like. And so prices go up. Yeah. I mean, that's basic supply and demand. But, you know, because the market in in a country like China is so big, you know. Yeah. On their own, they can completely influence the market for something like Merino. Worldwide, yeah. That's crazy. It is. Well, and they're like, their middle class is growing. So the number of people who can afford to buy the kinds of things, like, you know. Yeah. Well, the same thing's happening in the wine industry because of China. So China has gotten into, like, um, into you know, like, wine tasting. Like, their up-and-coming middle class is trying to, you know, be a little more bougie. So, like, they're... Yeah, with their Merino sweaters um, and their wine tasting. Yep. So they're drinking wine. And so the wine market has gone nuts because, you know, suddenly like there's, you know, there's a trend in China for buying wines from a specific place. And, you know, and then suddenly like, you know, all their supply is taken up and then prices just skyrocket everywhere else. It's Mm -hmm. crazy. It is. It's really bizarre. And I, 
you know, to me, it's something else that is far beyond my ability to predict. And well, I don't think we can predict it unless you've got somebody on the ground in China who knows what's going on. But like, no, you know, and it's, but it's important to think about because, you know, we are in a business that everyone, you know, we started this, this part of the conversation talking about the CSA yarn, which is like heavily local, but yeah, you can't focus only locally because global trends impact like global economic trends impact yarn. (laughs) Yeah. In strange ways that you didn't think could happen until they do. (laughs) Yeah. So the, you know, like what Clara Parks is doing has in some ways is worth investing in because yeah, like just strictly from a business perspective, because the price of Merino is going to be so high that it makes, it's going to make more sense to do things with other breeds with heritage breeds and specific mm-hmm. breed specific yarn because it's so unique, even though the fact, even though it's more expensive at this point, the price of Merino is going up so high. Yeah. So at some point it'll even out and yeah. And it'll be, you know, just as reasonable to buy a locally produced heritage breed as it is to get anything with Merino in it. If it keeps going the way it's been. Yeah. And it, you know, and you'll start seeing super washed versions of things that, Mm-hmm. You never would have expected to be super washed. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It is. I mean, it's it's kind of exciting. Like it's yeah. I mean, it's a well, challenge, it's, you know, but it's also like this could be this could be fun. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it in the like the grand scheme of business life, this is a really young industry. Yeah, it really is. You know, like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that we don't have precedent for. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us are like throwing things at the wall and trying to figure out what sticks. It's true. And I think the people who are willing to to do that are at an advantage over people who yeah. are, you know, like larger companies that have been doing this for a long time that are really married to a certain way of doing business. Yeah. Being more flexible and agile is going to make make it in the market. I think. Mm-hmm. And the other, you know, and then also it helps if you have lots of cash. That's always that's always handy. Speaking of cash, please sponsor this podcast. Exactly. Please direct your sponsorship sponsorship inquiries to the following. (laughs) Yeah, it's you know having cash on hand to make investments in innovation is such a basic business principle that. Well, I'm like you know if you had ten thousand dollars right now, you could buy up stock before you know like right now before. Merino gets any more expensive. You could buy up cheaper Merino. You know what I mean? Like it would, or you could invest in, in having something, you know, else made locally that doesn't involve Merino at all. You know what I mean? Like there's, if there's so many options, if you've got the cash, but you know, so many of our businesses are run hand to mouth. Oh, definitely. I mean, I was looking at, you know, the cost of sort of developing a new line of yarn um, Mm -hmm. at, actually at the Harrisville mill, because I was so impressed with everything that was going on there. Like with the, the yeah, sort of, to work with I was them. like, I want to work with you guys. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in reality to get out a line of yarn, that's got like 10, maybe 10 or 15 colors, which is, you know, reasonable. And, I mean, you're looking at like 70 grand yeah. and it's not because their prices are unreasonable. It's because that's the scale of, yeah, a mill that you can sort of rely on to do 
like mm-hmm. regular to like regularly produce for you. So yeah, like that's just what it looks like. And I'm thinking, I think this sounds amazing. Yeah, you'd have to give them enough volume for them to regularly be, be devoting time to making your yarn. Yeah, I mean, and they are, again, they're flexible. Um, like we already have infrastructure in place for packaging and stuff. So we wouldn't need them to do that. But like they yeah. they do that for um, for Brooklyn Tweed for other yarn. and yep. for other yarns that they produce for themselves. And mm-hmm. It's amazing, like the flexibility and the way that they kind of meet you where you are, but there's still a certain minimum that has to be met. It has to be viable for both ends of the business deal. Yeah. It just has to be. Like, otherwise, you know, somebody's doing it as a charity, which isn't ever going to work long term no. as a business. Well, and everyone, everyone's invested in their own business. Like, you can be yeah. friendly towards someone else's business, but you have to, you know, you got to pay your rent and pay your employees. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, I, you know, I'm still like, that's a thing that's in the back of my mind. I really, if you ever have $70,000 to burn. (laughs) More realistically, if I ever have, there's a point where you just have to start relying on credit, which makes me terribly nervous in general. Um, I know. (laughs) I have avoided it as hard, like real hard. Um, But there's a point where it just makes more sense to, to say, Hey, I, I want someone to invest invest in in this. Yeah. And then I have, you know, I have other things that I would like to invest in too. Like I would like to buy a building because I am tired of paying rent. And because frankly, Baltimore yes. is full of vacant buildings. Um, yeah. The building that I'm in now was that I'm renting was vacant before we moved in. So, yeah. Well, and buying a building, you know, probably about, about the same amount of investment as the yard it's line. A lar- it's a long-term big investment. <laughs> and yeah you know, you, you look at it and it's like, it's such a huge commitment. And then I'm like, well, but I have been doing this for a little over 10 years now. Obviously this is what I do. Right. Yeah. And you're, you know, you've been through it, been with it through hard times. So like you, you have committed. Definitely. You know, you've been through the hard times. You can manage it. It's going to be okay. You know, you'll make it work. Yeah. And I'm not at the point where I would like, where I'm, I used to tell people that the reason that, that I was successful now is because I'm not risk averse and I'm not opposed to just, just toughen it out. But that was, you know, that was before I had like a baby and a mortgage and yeah, you know, I'm raising my 13 year old (laughs) brother. So I am less risk averse, but I think that makes me wiser in terms of investments and makes me feel more comfortable making larger investments. Yeah, that makes sense. So as a woman of color, you're in the minority of this predominantly white industry. What has your experience been like? Well, I came into it with the sort of, I'd already been working in a yarn shop for a while and I hadn't done any of the big industry stuff, but I was aware that it was a predominantly, it was an, it was an industry that was predominantly dominated by white women. And I came into it with this idea of wanting to elevate urban spaces which would already like urban is already a buzzword for black so yeah yeah um, I just decided to roll with it like yeah this is yeah we're the black yarn company like it's cool it's just it's me and I mean the industry is very is very welcoming you still have to like I feel like I still have to there's certain like now people now that people know me better it's I don't have to do as much for of the stuff that I used to have to do one of the things that used to always happen to me and drove me crazy 
is that we would be at like a trade show or, mm-hmm. you know, any of uh, a big event in a booth yeah. and whoever, whatever white woman I had helping me work oh. the show, people would always They'd assume that her. she was the owner. Ah, uh, and yeah, it used to drive me <laughs> insane. And, yeah. and I mean, it, it even happened with like one of my interns and I was oh, no. like, seriously, seriously. <laughs> but yeah. I just, it's part yeah. of the package of doing business anyway, or like anywhere. Yeah. Um, and going well, and out like, to the world like that, you know, in a, in a woman dominated industry, like we are also, I feel that men probably have some of those same experiences, you know, like obviously this man doesn't know anything about what's going on. You know Definitely. what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's about minority and majority and not about the fact that you're black. Yeah. Well, sometimes, and there are some, like there are other times that people would um, like, you know, people um, from people find out we're from Baltimore and want to talk about the yeah. wire and oh. <laughs> People would, or or they. It's want a great TV about, show, but like it's not all of Baltimore. And, and like also, I wasn't on the wire, and right, I I don't know any of those people personally. So, you know, it's I'm like I can yeah. talk to you, I can talk to you about it because I watched the TV show, right? Um, Just like anybody else exactly. who has watched the TV show. <laughs> So there's that kind of stuff too, like that's or the people who want to talk about oh god whatever the latest terrible thing they saw on national news yeah. about Baltimore. Like, yeah. Like oh, are you scared all the time? Like uh, like like come on, there's just as much you know like crime and shit happening in Baltimore as there is in Chicago. Like I live. You know what I mean? This like, is just where I live. Like this is this is my home, and yeah, you know, like people are like, do you feel safe? And I was like, honestly, I feel safer in Baltimore than I do when I'm like doing the drive to to chicago like it's the spaces between that make me nervous um it's some of that might just be like uh more rural people's aversion to city life in the in the first place you know what i mean like oh definitely well in some shows i just don't go to because yeah i don't i don't feel like um having those conversations and we have enough well, and you want to play again, you want to play to your strengths. So yeah. we have yeah. employees who are better at that than I am because yeah. I am at the, I'm, I've reached this point in my life where my face shows what I'm thinking, whether I mean to or not. <laughs> so so yeah. I'm just like, yep, I'm going to skip this one. Yeah. I don't, I don't need to go to this particular show. It's not, no. I like to it's go to, I like to do shows on the East and the West coast. Yeah, because the other thing that I have found being a minority in this group is that people who are also minorities will flock to me and yeah. and sort of like we're excited to see each other. It's a camaraderie. That's great. And you only get that at certain shows yeah. where you're in you know a pretty diverse area. So like yeah. we just we didn't do Vogue New York this year because I am so very pregnant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and but, who wants to be standing and do a whole, you know, do a show for two, three days while well, being very pregnant? It would have not worked. I definitely, no. I had to be talked out of it. I'm always yeah. uh, over scheduling myself. It's, it's so, good that you were talked out of it because it also could have induced premature labor. So. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I barely made it through um, Rhinebeck and that yeah. was in my second trimester. Yeah. So well, and right, I can't The farm imagine. was so sweltering. It was hot and it was... This, just the standing and yeah. 
I am not an extrovert, so it, yeah. it, it like it's expends a lot of emotional energy for me. Yeah. And by the end of it, uh, I was so happy. My mom came to help out and oh, just nice. basically to take care of us. Yeah. To take care of me. That's good. Which was great because on the Saturday of Rhinebeck, we're sitting in front of the house in the car and everyone else has gotten out and I am sitting in the passenger seat just bawling, like having a complete <laughs> oh, meltdown no. because I am just done, yeah. like completely done. Uh-huh. So yeah, no, Vogue New York would have been terrible in that way. Yeah. But I love that show because I see so many different kinds of people and they're so yeah. happy to see me yeah. and I'm happy to see them. I feel like I have this great community of like knitters of color and it's fantastic. It's great. Well, I love your voice in this industry and I thank you for being part of it. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I feel like I'm getting louder and louder and less censored. (laughs) Well, so let me finish this up by asking you the question that everyone gets asked at the end of season one. So ready. Um, Yeah. What is your everyday superpower? I have a super sense of smell. Nice. It, is it even worse now that you're yes, pregnant? Yes, yes, it is. It's, <laughs> it is wretched. Um, it, was, it was a mixed blessing to begin with. But yeah. now it's like, oh, man, it's terrible. And I, um, you know, in the first trimester, it wasn't so bad because, you know, I just accepted that that was part of yeah. Like you smell like it things. It could be part of the nausea. Yeah. It could be, yeah. And it just, it's part of, it's the way, you know, your body tells you, keeps you from eating food that's bad. And I'm like, yeah. I respect that body. Thank you for that. But now. Yeah. Well, especially because like, you know, if you have a bout of food poisoning, like it could be really stressful to a fetus that young. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like two days of you not eating and losing weight, like it could stress the hell out of a fetus. Oh, yeah. So no, like, you end up it's a on... defense mechanism for your body. Yeah. Well, you end up, you end up with like, like having to be put on IV fluids like Mm -hmm. nobody wants that it's terrible no so yeah I could appreciate that and understand it (laughs) thanks for looking out body as like an evolutionary thing at this point though I'm just like something's rotten in the third in the room on lot on the third floor there's food up there I don't know what it is I can smell it it's crazy (laughs) Um, like I like I walk (laughs) around the city and there are just lots of different smells and yeah I feel like I can pick them out in the car, like as I'm driving by, I'm like, Oh God, what is that? That's, and I'm like, Nope, that's the dumpster behind the Italian grocery store. Oh my God. That's great. Like I know what that one is. Yep. Well, super smellers. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, if I, if this yarn thing doesn't work out, I'm sure that's a job for someone. Well, part of, so if you were a super taster and a super smeller, you could be a sommelier. That would be, that would be fun. Awesome. Sweet. Well, thank you. Thanks for talking to me, Carita. It was good to talk to you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thanks for having me. I want to say thank you again to Karita for her perspective in this industry and for taking the time to talk to me for the podcast. Now let's talk with Deb Robson about Lester Longwool, the breed that Neighborhood Fiber Company uses in their community-supported fiber offering. Hey, Deb. Thanks for joining me again. Hi, Miriam. It's a delight. Let's talk about Lester Longwool today. And let's talk about the pronunciation. <laughs> it's, oh, yes. First, it's L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R, Lester. Lester. Absolutely. Like um, Worcestershire. <laughs> like, same exactly kind of thing. Exactly what I was thinking. Exactly. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. So a lot of people get it wrong. And it's just Lester Longwell. Yeah. It's it's so much easier to pronounce than it is to spell. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about this breed. Okay. It is a really old breed from Leicestershire in England. Mm-hmm. It is Leicester one of Shire the... meaning the, the Shire of Leicester. The, the county. The, <laughs> the county. county, yeah. The British counties over the years have changed their boundaries with different yeah. eras and stuff. So you kind of look at... But it's roughly the same part of the part of the world okay okay it's an old breed we think that these types of sheep came into the british isles with the romans we're not certain okay and then kind of settled into different breeds in different areas adapted to the environments okay and it i think i mentioned is one of the 11 long wool breeds from the uk okay wow that's a lot of specifically long wool breeds it is. And they have fairly different wools. Some of them are, are, are similar to each other. So three that are similar to each other, but have a slightly different histories. Lester Longwool, Lincoln, and Cotswold. If you okay. like one, you'll like the others. Okay. Basically. The Lester Longwool was the one that Robert Bakewell in the 18th century worked with to increase the meat output of the breed. Okay. So he was trying to make it into a dual purpose flock. Yeah, he didn't have, he didn't have much interest in wool. Okay. He was really interested in the meat because yeah. the population was booming at that point and it was becoming a lot more urban. Yeah, so there was more demand for meat within the city. Yeah, huge demand. So so it was original so it was it adapted itself to the the climate. So basically he was trying to get a meat breed starting with what was already adapted to the environment rather than like trying to bring in a meat sheep and try to adapt it to the environment then. There's a correct in that and there's a slight modification. Yeah. Uh, The modification being that most breeds up to that time had been primarily valued for wool. Okay. So meat was a byproduct. Yeah. I mean, mean, yes, not an important byproduct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they weren't weren't going for like, you know, nice, tender, like heavy, heavy meat production. It was more like, we're going to shear these sheep for our wool and when they're old and they're not, you know, shear worthy anymore, or if one of them gets killed by a wolf, we'll eat the, the yes. meat. Yeah. I mean, okay. because they, they needed they needed meat, but yeah. but not to the same extent. But they also needed the wool. Yeah. So anyway, um, Bakewell, there is a misconception that he was interested in the wool. There was another Robert Bakewell working at the same time who was interested in the wool. <laughs> which... Well, and the name Bakewell makes me think of Bakewell tarts, which are a whole thing that I've learned about from Great British Bake Off. Okay. Well, I haven't discovered them yet, even though we watched. <laughs> there's there's apparently a lot of Bakewells. Yeah. Um, so anyway, <laughs> as a long wool breed, it grows a lot of wool, Mm -hmm. which means that it needs quite good nutrition because all of that wool is protein. Yeah. So they'd need lots of protein or else the structure of the wool wouldn't be sturdy enough for, you know, combing and 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 all that stuff. And they couldn't grow an inch a month, which they do. I mean, you can grow. Wow, that's a lot. Yes. 12 inches a year. Jeez. That means generally that they're shorn twice a year. Yeah, because 12 inches is, is more than you can really handle on any kind of, like, hand cards, generally. Well, unless you're, unless you're using it for doll hair yeah, or yeah. Santa's or something like that, there are reasons that you might want, or even to make a really long fleece rug, a rear rug yeah. type rug. Yeah, but so, generally it's easier to handle with a shorter staple length. Six inches is, you know, still a long wool. It's still hefty, yes. Yeah. yeah. 
So it tends to be very strong, okay. very shiny, mm. takes dyes beautifully. So a little more hair-like than than uh, wool-like? I am cautious to say hair-like. Okay. Just because hairs tend to be stiffer. Okay. It's still very supple. Okay. And, you know, yeah, coming into it, you might say more hair-like, but no. <laughs> more, more like human hair, not like hair breeds of sheep. <laughs> yeah. But, yes, but there's crimp in it. Okay, got it. You know, and and some breeds of sheep have long hair, mm-hmm. again, which is stiffer than this is. It's it's very sleek. Okay. It's a lovely wool. It shines. It comes in gorgeous white. There are are genes for color, which mm. produce grays to blacks. Ooh, love that. Uh, yeah, it's it's a lovely wool. A lot of people don't know how to use it well because it is not soft. Mm-hmm. But if you spin it worsted, so that all of the ends of the fibers are not sticking out where they can potentially prickle you, it can be quite smooth feeling. Oh, okay. And it can actually feel kind of cool. Okay, well, the silky... Would, yeah, would give you that in the same way that like, um, you know, like a mercerized cotton lawn fabric will give you kind of a cool to the touch feel. Yes, although it is like all wools, a yeah, warm yeah. fiber, you know, so that you can lie under a, oh, yeah. a long wool blanket and stay warm. Yeah, but it yeah. would still be cool to the touch to begin with. Yes, yeah. Interesting. So it's, I think I said it takes dyes beautifully because of yeah. the luster, and it's just an exquisite fiber that is one of my favorites. So some long wools have um, more of a curl structure than a like crimp, like a traditional, you know, like a rambouillet or a merino or something like that. What's this one? Okay, it is crimp because it is a it is built into the structure of the fiber that that yes. waviness occurs. Uh, but indeed, you're going to see. But on the sheep, it looks a little more like curls than like poofs. Looks a whole lot more like curls. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. That's cool. Well, so yeah, is there is there ever a reason to keep the lock structure intact? Like just you know to have to have those curls? Like I guess you could use them yes. decoratively. Yes. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, People do use it for doll hair oh, okay. or for beards on Santa's. Yeah. You can use those locks in weaving. Mm, and get kind of a okay. boucle texture where the boucle locks texture pop up. Or, or just use the, the locks and create like a, a woven sheepskin. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you, you knot them around the warp threads That's so cool. that the locks stick out. You can also, I, one of my favorite things to do with a long wool like this is to roughly card it. Mm-hmm. And yes, I know you need to keep your strokes really long. Really long. <laughs> yeah, because you don't want the fibers to back up on themselves. Yeah. You don't have, want them to loop around. Yeah. Uh, keep it really long, card it, and then spin with a really light hand uh-huh. and let the ends where you they still exist together in clumps pop out. Okay. It's it's a cheap cheap way to, cheap physically yeah, yeah. energetically way to to get a novelty yarn. Okay, so it would have little like uh, curly loopy ends sticking. Yeah, out. that's yeah. Good. It's it's not exactly a boucle. No, because um, it's not as structured, but it's a whole lot of fun. But a to lot do. of texture. Yes, for not a lot of work. Correct. That makes sense. Yeah. No, I I get a you know I, it's it's cheap thrills. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um. I imagine because the climate that the Lester Longwell is is adapted to is England, that some places in New England would also be reasonable for it. Same kind of like, you know, moisture content in the air and like, you know, cool, not generally very hot, that kind well, of stuff. Well, um, northeast and northwest U.S. are good places to find them. And the primary reason we have Lester Longwells in this country is because of Colonial Williamsburg. Oh, 
okay. So for reenactments and stuff, they brought a, a time-appropriate sheep. Yes, and there's a quite a quite a series of long stories about how that occurred um, and where they got the sheep and the fact that they have seeded, Colonial Williamsburg has seeded the other Lester Longwell flocks that we have in this country at this point. That's awesome. Yeah. So we can really trace any Lester Longwell in this country back to Colonial Williamsburg. I believe that's true. That's really cool. Yeah. Summing up Lester Longwell, it is a really fast-growing fleece uh, adapted probably from Roman uh, imports into Britain and hanging out in a specific place. It kind of adapted to there, to Leicestershire. Leicestershire? Yes. Yeah. And shiny, silky. Sturdy. Kind of a sturdy, kind of a curl structure in when you look at it. That sounds great. Yeah, it's wonderful. The Lester Longwool that that Neighborhood Fiber Company is doing in their in their fiber CSA, Carita's dye technique is already like deep, deep colors. Yes. So I imagine the Lester Longwool is absolutely gorgeous with her dyes. Yeah, it will be. Thanks, Deb. You're welcome, Mary. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes to see the Lester Longwell's signature locks and to find links for all the other things we've discussed. This podcast was produced in Salt Lake City, Utah, with production help from Sid Fallon. Music is by the ever-elusive Breakmaster Cylinder. I'll see you again in two weeks for an interview with Jonathan Berner of MJ Yarns. Bye. Hey, babe. Hi. What you doing in the closet? <laughs>